Um, So we're starting a new series today. It's a series called, Where Does Jesus Lead? Okay, we just finished. uh, In our last series, we talked about what does following Jesus mean? What does it entail? Right, we saw that it means spending time with him, being part of his family within the church, and then experiencing his blessings, right, honoring him with our lives. Well, in this new series, this three-part series that we're going to do, we're going to look at where does Jesus lead? Right? If you are going to follow him, where is he going to lead you? Right? Where and into what will Jesus lead you? Um, some of you have heard the phrase, uh, God's will. Right? Or the question, what is God's will for my life? Right? That's what we're going to be looking at. I remember when I was first beginning to explore Christianity, and I was first beginning to talk to people about following Jesus, I remember asking the question, if I commit to following Jesus, where are we going? Where is Jesus going that I'm going to follow him? And, and for me, more importantly, I asked, how will I know what he wants me to do? Right? How am I going to know what his will for me is? He, and I remember asking this, kind of feeling a little bit silly, but I said, is he going to leave me a voicemail or is he going to send me a letter? Right? Exactly how do we encounter, or where do we get Jesus' will for our lives? And so if you have ever asked the question, what should I do? then this series is for you. I think all of us ask that question, right? In one area of life or another, we ask this question about our work, about our career. We ask it about relationships and about our families. Um, We ask it about how we spend our time. We ask it in the midst of difficulties, problems in life. Uh, When life gets frustrating or complicated uh, or confusing, And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that I'm pretty sure that all of you are asking this question, what should I do in some area of your life right now? Well, what if you could get advice from Jesus? What if you could say, Jesus, what should I do? And Jesus would answer. That's what we're going to look at today. That's what we're going to look at in this series Before we start, though, I want to actually tell you a little bit more about who Jesus is. Okay, I think that's important because you have to know Jesus in order to trust him enough to be willing to follow him. Right? There are folks who are both, I mean, some Christians struggle with this. Yeah, I'm committed to Jesus because there's some things, but I don't know if I can follow him in just about in everything that he says. Right? And then there are folks who aren't Christians yet, who are part of our family, who at this point they're trying to figure out, can I trust Jesus enough to be willing to follow him wherever he leads? And so I want to tell you a little bit more about Jesus so that you can help understand who he is. You know, when you get a new boss you know, at work, so much of how you feel about following that boss depends on who they are. Right? So we're going to look. And again, I just want to remind you a little bit about Jesus. Jesus is the God who made the heavens and the earth. Okay, that's where it starts. And so he made the heaven and earth. So everything that you see, Jesus created sky, land, soil, and water. He created these things. He created clouds, rain, waves, Light, cliffs, mountains. He created colors. 
Jesus created trees and plants and flowers. What he created tells you something about who he is. It tells you about his creativity. It tells you about his loves. What he is into is reflected by the diversity of what he's made. Jesus created fruits and vegetables. He created food, right, in all kinds of flavors and types. He created animals. He created insects. Right? He created everything that we see. Right? He created it all, and he created it all good. Good. Jesus created people and relationships. Okay? And he filled the world with his love and his peace. With his love and his peace. This is who he is. Um, and this peace, the Hebrews um, had this, this word that they used to describe. It's not, just, it's not just like a ceasefire kind of peace, but it's this fully orbed peace that touches everything. And the Hebrew word for it is shalom. Right? Shalom. It's, it's fourfold. It's peace with God. It's peace with each other. It's peace with the earth, everything else that he created. And then it's peace with ourselves. Right? And this fourfold peace in the Bible, this shalom, this is what Jesus created the world to be. And he said it was very good. Okay? This is who Jesus is. Now, when Jesus created people, he crowned people with glory and honor. He put glory and honor on people. And then he called people, he called humanity to live in ways that would increase the shalom of the world. Okay? He called us to live in ways that, that we would increase our shalom with him. We'd increase shalom with each other. We would increase shalom with the world that he made. And that we would have a greater and growing sense of, of shalom within ourselves. Okay, this is his desire. And so in this, in, in how he created us, he gave a calling. Right? He called human beings to, to a task. And he said, I want you to explore the world. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it says, Jesus says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. He was saying, explore the world and make things that are even more beautiful than what I've made. He said, relate to each other and learn how to bond with each other and care for each other more and more deeply. Right? He said, and in all of this, learn about me. As you explore the world, learn about me. So that your shalom with me, your peace, your sense of relationship with me grows. He says, I want you to live in this world and to rule over this world in ways that increase peace. That is his calling for us. Okay, this is what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 10, verse 10. This is the first verse there on your list of verses on page 6. It says there, John 10, 10, Jesus, this is Jesus talking, he said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus says that he actually came onto the scene. He came into the world so that we would experience what he calls abundant life. A life of abundance. His will for us is that in our lives that we would experience his shalom. We would experience peace with him and that we would live our lives in a way that would increase that shalom for others. That's what abundant life is. So for you, so Jesus' will for you, what is God's will for my life? Is that you would experience, share, and increase his shalom in the world. Okay? That's the big banner over which you can understand his will for you in your life. And that, that desire, that calling from Jesus affects every question and every issue that you face. Okay? When we look and see, um, Jesus tells us in the Bible exactly what his will for our lives is. He tells us exactly um, what his expectations are for us. Okay? He makes it super clear. We're going to look at the ways that Jesus makes it really clear to us. But you have to understand who Jesus is and what his big calling for us is. Because that's how we're going to understand the particulars of his will for your life. Okay? And so we're going to see this um, in, in really three ways. I'm just going to give them to you as we come to them. The first thing that we see in Scripture when we ask the question, what is Jesus' will for my life? Jesus wants you to have, first and foremost, a relationship with him. So that's there on, the, on page 7. If you want to write something down, Jesus' will is that you would have a relationship with him. Look at 2 Peter 3.9. That's that next verse there. It says, the Lord, this is Jesus, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient with you, toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a great picture of Jesus. This is an amazing picture of Jesus. He is patient. And he's not just patient in general, he's patient toward you. He doesn't want any of you to perish in judgment. He wants everyone to reach repentance. Which means if you are, if you are heading for judgment, he wants, he's patient, he's waiting so that you can reach the point where you will repent and escape from judgment. Now, it's our sin that brings judgment. Okay? It's our sin. If, and, if, and I want you to think about sin in terms of who Jesus is, right? If Jesus' calling in our lives is to experience, share, and increase his shalom, what that means is that sin is any way that you disrupt that sense of shalom. Okay? Just a little bit of a different way to think about it. Any way that you disrupt shalom. So in any way that you want to think about it, how have you disrupted peace, shalom, with your neighbor? Ways that you've contributed relationally to the disruption of peace. In what ways have you disrupted peace with the earth? 
Right? Instead of being good stewards of it, you might have abused it. Think about shalom with God. Have you done anything that contributes to a severing or a break or a cutting off of your relationship with God? This is what sin is. So as I think about that, you know, gossip, revenge, manipulation, these are ways that we disrupt shalom in our lives. The idea of wanting to be my own God, not wanting to let God have his rightful place of authority in my life. Right? That's a way that I disrupt my shalom with him. Well, Jesus' will for your life is that you would reach the point of repentance. Okay, and so, again, think about the picture here. This means that you have veered off of Jesus' intention for your life. Right? You veered off course. And Jesus, repentance means that Jesus is inviting you to return. To me, this is exciting because what this means is that you were created by a God who loves you, who cares deeply for you, and is calling you to actually participate with him in making this world experience his fourfold peace. Who wouldn't want that? Right? If you have swerved from that course, Jesus is saying, you know what? You're selling yourself short. Man, there is such, an, like, there's such a higher calling that you can have in your life. I, am call- I love you. I created you. And I've called you to this. Don't you realize that if you follow me, where I'm going to lead you, my desire for you is that you would stop disrupting peace in the world and actually become an agent of its increase. Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish, but he would rather that you return. Your creator is inviting you to return to his calling in your life. And when you repent, when you turn, when you say, okay, I'm living in a way that's disrupting this peace, it could be the whole trajectory of your life that you're ignoring God in your life and doing your own thing. It could be that in some ways you are trying to honor God and trying to build peace, but then there's particular areas of your life where you're not. And so, but in either sense, repentance means, it means turning. It means saying, God, I'm sorry. I'm going to confess to you that I have disrupted peace in this world, in my life. And I'm going to come back to you. When you do that, God forgives your sins. And he restores you to your calling. And it goes even further. Because God doesn't leave you by yourself uh, to work this out and to become these agents of change, right? Because in a sense, my goodness, who could possibly do these things, right? Being an agent for peace and shalom in the world. Oh, I can't do that. Right? Well, God says that's all right. You don't have to do it by yourself. Look at Ephesians 5, verses 17 and 18. Again, this is under the idea of a relationship with God, looking for his will. What is God's will for you? It says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Right? The will of the Lord. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit The Spirit, this is God's Holy Spirit. This is God's presence 
in you. Okay, God grants forgiveness to you. He clothes you and cleanses you from your sins when you return to him. And then God fills you with himself. The idea of being filled is the idea of the controlling influence in your life. What is Jesus' will for your life? Jesus, what should I do? Jesus would say, well, I don't want you to be controlled by alcohol. But rather, I want you to be controlled by me. I want the controlling influence of your life to be me. That is the will of the Lord. And it makes sense, right? Because if Jesus' will is that you would work to experience and increase shalom in the world, you probably need his influence to do that, right? You probably need his strength in order to be able to do that. You need his thinking in you to be able to know how to do that. And so if you want to return to this amazing, glorious calling in your life, you need a relationship with him. Jesus' desire, his will, is that you would be in a relationship with him. He is the source of peace. He is the source of power that brings about peace. And what's amazing is that his will is that you would be filled and influenced by his spirit. So, how does this practically work itself out? Well, when you have a decision to make, when you're confused in life, you ask yourself, okay, let's just start with what I know. Am I in a relationship with Jesus? You know, have I returned to him? Is there an area of my life where I need to return to him? Right? You get that cleared up. And then, if Jesus' presence were in me, if his influence was what was controlling my decisions, then what would I do? Does that make sense? It's a way to walk in that. So Jesus will first lead you, talking about where he's leading, he'll lead you into a relationship with him. Second, Jesus will lead you, this is our second point in the outline, Jesus will lead you, or he want, and he wants you to have an attitude powerful enough to shape your circumstances. Okay? Jesus' will is that you have an attitude powerful enough to shape your circumstances. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is God's will for my life? That you would thank him. That you would have an attitude of thankfulness that produces rejoicing and gratitude to God. Like that's his aim. That's his will for you. That's where he's leading you. Um, there's a, a guy who speaks, his name is Michael Ramsden, and he said this quote. He said, the problem that we have in our lives isn't that we have nothing to be thankful for. Rather, it's that we have no one to be thankful to. And I like that because it helps us to make sure that we're not just sort of telling ourselves, oh, I've got to be thankful, I've got to be thankful, I've got to be thankful. But what this is doing is that this is inviting us to have an attitude that will shape our circumstances. You can see how this thankfulness, if you think about being thankful to God, that actually reinforces the relationship 
that you have with him. Okay, now, if you struggle to know what to be thankful for, I mean, one of the best places to start is to just to be thankful for a God who made this wonderful world and has called you to play a part in increasing his shalom in it. That's something you can be thankful for. That God thinks so much of you. That God has blessed you in such ways that he actually wants you to be part of his plan in the world. I could be thankful for that. When I think about that, it causes me to remember, okay, you know, um, things are bad, but in the midst of this bad, I actually can be thankful that God has, uh, that God has a plan for this, that God's going to work this out for good. And he's going to use me. He's going to use my attitude and my response to this to bring that about. The next verse there is 1 Peter 2, 12 to 15. Under the rubric of an attitude that's powerful enough to shape your circumstances, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles are the folks who don't believe in Jesus. Um, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Verse 15, For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So again, you see, this is God's will. This is the will of Jesus for you. He calls you to submit to the authorities in your life. Why? Well, because you're trusting that God is going to take care of you. You trust the ultimate authority, and your attitude toward the other authorities in life are a reflection of your attitude toward God and his authority. But then he wants you to live this way because by doing this, you will live a life that will help the non-Christians around you. It'll help debunk their wrong views of Christianity. Okay, how many people do you know that if you ask them, what is Christianity? They would tell you, they would say something that would just, I mean, just so far from reality, right? I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people and I've asked them, so what do you think about Jesus? Um, or what do you think about God? And they will normally say, oh, I, I don't believe in Christianity because it's radically intolerant, it's self-righteous and judgmental. And I'll say, gosh, um, that's not Christianity. That's not Jesus. People say, well, I'm against a God who hates people. I'm against a God who, um, yeah, who is intolerant or who is judgmental. You know, and the image that they have of, of God is not, doesn't fit with who Jesus is. Right? And so this passage is saying that God's will in your life is that you, by doing good, could live in a way that would make people say, 
Huh. I didn't know that that was Christianity. Or they would say, wow, like, I thought I understood what Christianity was, but then I see your life, and you don't fit the categories that I've had for what Christianity is. Like, the Jesus that you follow seems much more attractive to me um, than what I've been exposed to previous to this. And so, in the midst of this, I think that what I want you to see out of this passage is that it's your attitude of humility that enables you to live in a way that debunks people's wrong views of Christianity. When I think about this idea of submission, I think that we can apply it um, in terms of service. Right? That a heart of submission, a heart, uh, you know, an attitude of submission fleshes itself out in a desire to serve. You know, because when you serve other people, when you care for them, when you put their needs ahead of yours, that's how you increase peace. Right? That's how you step into the role that Jesus has for you. And when you do that, you're following God's will for your life. And when your life is characterized by thankfulness and service, these are attitudes that shape your circumstances. Okay? Thankfulness and service in any situation. Right? Because there is always something that you can be thankful for. That you have a God who created you and called you to this that you have a God who loves you and has gone to the uttermost extent to bring you back into relationship with him, right? A God who has been gracious to you, a God who has put you into a family of people who care about you, right? All of these things are things that you can be thankful for regardless of your circumstances. And when you practice thankfulness, when you practice, it's almost like thankfulness strengthens you to be able to serve, Right? Sometimes you've got to go thankfulness first, and then as you're thankful, you remind yourself, wait a second, God has been good to me even in the midst of this. And then that begins to move you into serving others. And then you're the one overcoming your circumstances. You're the one in the midst of your circumstances, not letting your circumstances dictate how you're going to feel and what your attitude is going to be like. That's God's will for you. That is God's will for you, and that's joyful. So, when you don't know what to do, right, you want to ask yourself, am I thankful to God right now? What can I be thankful for? And if you haven't been thankful, you can kind of go back to the relationship one and say, what do I need to repent of, right? Um, But how can I be thankful uh, to God right now? How can I respond now in a way that would show that I am thankful to him for what he's done in my life? And then how can I respond to this situation or this question in my life or this dilemma in a way that would serve others? Right? If you can answer those questions, it actually brings you back into that sphere where you are in the will of God for your life. So, Jesus' will for you is that you would have a relationship with him, that you'd have an attitude that's powerful enough to shape your circumstances. Finally, Jesus' will, he will lead you, he wants you to have 
is the third point, a life that shows you've been with Jesus. A life that shows you've been with Jesus. Uh, the next verse there on, our, on page 6 is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, so this verse says that God's will is your sanctification. Okay, that's kind of a big theological term that really just means your, uh, your growth to be like Jesus. God's will for you is that you would grow, that you'd be progressively growing spiritually so that your life would look more and more like Jesus. Now, that means, you know, what Jesus does is he experiences and increases shalom in the world. Right? That's what Jesus is doing. And so this is saying that, that God's will for you is that you would grow to a place, again, where you are experiencing and increasing God's shalom. Sexual immorality actually disrupts God's shalom. Okay, and it does that in in a few ways. Um, Sexual immorality destroys self-control. Right? It pulls you into giving in to your your desires in ways that don't produce peace. Right, um, this is something. Sexual immorality causes you to be living in a way where you are controlled by your bodily desires, whereas Jesus would call you to be in control of those desires. Right, so it disrupts His peace in that way. Sexual immorality destroys relationships. Right, there have been books that talk about the culture of hooking up. You know, the, the culture of casual sex. There are a movie, there's a movie out right now, Friends with Benefits, and uh, I haven't seen it, but I've read reviews about it, and it's interesting because it sort of shows the lie of casual sex among friendships. You can't do these things without joining your lives together. Physically, what you do when you have sex is you are connecting and joining your life with someone else. The only way for that to increase peace in the world is if you never, ever break up. Okay, because if you join together and then break up, you tear your lives apart. And this is why breaking up is so difficult. Um, And if you do this over and over and over again, I mean, this is what sexual immorality is, one aspect of sexual immorality, you destroy your ability Right? You lose confidence. You lose the ability to trust other people. You end up not being able. You end up with a fear of commitment. I mean, there are lots of ways that sort of manifest itself. But sexual immorality, it, it corrupts our ability to live in peace with other people. I think, too, and this might be most significant, although um, if you're not a Christian, I don't expect that this would... Um, I don't know, this might not move you as deeply, but um, sexual immorality, I think, also corrupts the image of God's faithfulness and fidelity to his own people. 
in the Bible, when God is trying to communicate his relationship with his people, his commitment to his people, he says that the church is like the bride and Jesus is like the husband. God's intention for marriage, his design for marriage, is that it would, in a sense, reflect God's relationship with his people. And sexual immorality really disrupts that image. It keeps us from actually being able to understand God's commitment and his love and the peace that he wants to enjoy with his people. And so this, I mean, it's interesting because in this passage, you've got the will of God is your sanctification. It's your spiritual development. And the one example that's brought up here is sexual immorality. And so Jesus' will for you, though, is obviously that you would grow spiritually in the area of your sex life. Um, but this is just one example. Jesus' desire is that you would have a growing relationship with him, that your life would look more and more the way his life looked. Because the more you imitate Jesus, the more of his peace you will experience and also spread and share with others. The hope is that, uh, is that people would be able to see your life. And not, none of us are perfect. I mean, this isn't about looking for people who are, who are perfect, but just that there would be... I mean, I love it. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, um, at the very beginning when the church started, uh, the religious leaders that were opposed to Jesus were opposed to the early followers of Jesus... And it's amazing because in the midst of their frustration with these new followers of Jesus, uh, they tried to get them to stop. They didn't want them to follow Jesus. But then this is how, it, this is how they described the... Well, just listen to this. This is Acts 4.13. It says, Now when the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, right, they were two of the apostles, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's his will for our life, is that our lives would look like we have been with Jesus. This is fleshed out a little bit more with 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Again, this is a life that looks like you've been with Jesus. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, Jesus underscores this by saying in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I think this is helpful for us because you might get this impression that if you say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, that all of a sudden your life is going to come up all roses and work out perfectly in every way. That's not how it works. Okay, that's not how it works. Jesus actually said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. 
um, life following Jesus, a life embracing the will of Jesus, is not easy. It is not easy. And so much so that 1 Peter 4 kind of says, it's like this is sort of a corrective. Folks, look, if you're experiencing lots and lots of trouble, don't be surprised. You are not outside of the will of God. Okay, you have to hear that. If you are suffering right now, because sometimes we think, oh, if things aren't going well, I must have done something wrong. Right? God's not happy with me. Otherwise, my life would be working out perfectly. I wouldn't have trouble. I wouldn't have suffering. Uh Uh-uh. No. No. This life was not easy for Jesus. To follow him will not be easy for you. If you are suffering. And look what it says. Verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. This is saying that part of a life that shows that you've been with Jesus is a life that is not unfamiliar with suffering. Some people have said that if you're not suffering, you might not be in God's will. And I'd be careful about that because you can go crazy. Um, it takes some wisdom to, to know how to apply that. But, but the point is that if you are suffering, it may be that you are smack dab in the center of God's will. And that's comforting. Right? I mean, we'd love to get out of the situation that we're in. Sometimes God says, okay, and he lifts us out. Other times God says, you know what? You just need to look, and I'm right there with you. So the sum of all of this, right, to sum all this up, is that Jesus has revealed these things so that we can know what his will is for our lives. Jesus has made it really, really clear um, so that we can understand and embrace his calling for us to live in a way that increases peace in our relationships with God and us, um, you know, with the, the, the communities that we live in. It's, it's our relationship with him, it's our attitude, and it's our life. God wants us to know what to expect. And so when you're struggling, when you're struggling and you don't know what to do, the key is to start with what you know. Start with what you know. And you run through these things. Take these verses out and say, okay, am I in a relationship with God? Is there anything? And you can pray about this. Lord, I think I'm in a relationship with you. Is there anything in my life that is out of whack that I need to return to you in? Is there any way I'm disrupting your peace? Show that to me so I can confess it. Um, Are you experiencing his attitude of thankfulness and service? Are you walking in that? And then are you living in a way that shows Jesus? Right? You want to ask yourself those things. If you can say yes, and it's not an issue of being perfect, okay? It doesn't mean you're perfectly in a relationship with God, but if in your heart of hearts you are living in a relationship with him, you have an attitude of thankfulness and service, and your life is showing that you're living, you're growing spiritually, if you're in that place, then you are in the circle of God's will, okay? And this is big. 
Okay, there's something I want you to write down. God's will is a circle, not a point. Okay, God's will is a circle and not a point. Let me illustrate this. Um, There's an author of a book. It's called Decision Making and the Will of God. Pretty helpful title. Um, And in this book, um, it describes God's will like a playground. Okay, you want to think of this sort of, you know, there's there's a really short concrete wall. There's sand all over it, so the wall sort of holds the sand in. And in this, in this playground, you've got, you've got uh, the swings, right? You've got the climbing apparatus. You've got the jungle gym. You've got the merry-go-round. You've got the slide, right? So you can picture this playground. And what this book says, and I think this is absolutely right, is that God's will is like being in the playground, okay? And these verses that we've looked at, these define how you know if you're on the playground or not. Okay, if you embrace these verses and are, um, and are connecting with these verses in your life, then you are in the playground. And then when it comes to, Lord, what should I do? Lord, what should I do about this relationship? What should I do about buying or renting? What should I do about my job? What should I, any of these things, like anything that you want to know, Lord, what should I do? If you're in the playground, God's will is that you can play with anything that's there. The idea here is that any decision that you can make and stay in the playground is part of God's will for your life. Does that make sense? Any decision that you make that keeps you in the playground of these passages of Scripture that are very clearly revealing what God's will for your life is any decision that you can make that keeps you in the playground is part of God's will for your life. So as long as you're in the circle, you can choose to do, catch this, whatever you want. This is what Psalm 37.4 says. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What that means is, if you're delighting in him, which means you are in the circle, then choose whatever you want, because your desires will come from him. That's good news. For me, that's comforting. To know that as long as I'm making decisions that are within what God has clearly said his will is for me, that I cannot make a decision that would put me outside of his will. That is comforting. That is freeing. It can be kind of scary because sometimes we just want to be told what to do. But there's, I mean, and we'll look, we'll look more in the next couple of weeks at more, more of this, this concept. So let me just end our time. Um, by going back to where we started. Um, because question for us is, what if, what if you're not in the circle? What if you were in the circle and have made some decisions that have put you out of the circle? What if when you think about being in the circle, you think, man, that's not me. I'm not good enough to be ever in that circle. 
If that's how you feel, I want to bring you back to John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. It's right back to where we started. And this is so important that we get this right. There Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you are outside of this circle, if there's a part of your life that's outside of the circle or your whole life is outside of the circle, you need to come back to Jesus. And you need to remember that Jesus was the one who lived in a way where he was always in the circle. And when he lived that way, God raised him from the dead. And he has overcome everything. So Jesus shows us that the circle is the place where we want to be. But Jesus does more because Jesus actually left the circle on the cross so that he could find us where we are outside that circle. Jesus left the circle and experienced the punishment for our sins so that he could find us exactly where we are, pick us up, and then bring us back in. Our relationship with God is not based on our ability to get into the circle. Our relationship with God is based on Jesus' life in the circle and his his willingness to take our punishment for our time outside. And he carries us in and wants to spend time with us so that we can stay close to him, so that we can continue to experience his peace and share it with others. Let's pray together. Lord, Lord, we are so, we are moved by you and your grace. Lord, uh, that you would call us to taste even your peace astounding that you would call us to be spreaders of your peace and Lord that you would take it on yourself to suffer for the times when we ignored you when we ignored your peace Jesus these are things that make me want to follow you my whole life These are things that speak into my life and make me realize you have so much in store for me, for us. And Jesus, would you please speak to everyone? Speak to every individual here. Bring comfort. Bring wisdom. Bring assurance, Lord. Give us Just help us to be able to see this so that we would follow you. Lord, for those who are not following you, where they have either wandered out of the circle or they've never ever been part of the circle, Jesus, would you show them that you are here to pick them up and carry them into this abundant life?
help them to commit to you right now, to follow you. Help them to repent and return. Amen.